uh, we're in the first chapter of the book of John. John chapter 1, and we're going to look at the same passage that we looked at last week. And it's not because I didn't have time to study. And uh, no, I did actually study. But I want to take a look at this this whole uh, declaration that John the Baptist talks about with Jesus. And I'll just go ahead and read it to you, then I'll, we'll jump into this. And I, I've got three hours worth of notes, so does anybody, does anybody have something they need to do this afternoon? No, I'm going to end on time. But uh, there's, there's a lot here. And so I may just crank it up, and you know, this is my first cup of coffee this morning, so I've got to let it kick in for a bit. But anyway... Um, but there is just really a lot really to consider here. Well, I'm going to be quiet about that and go ahead and read the text to you, and then we'll jump into this. Starting with verse 29 of John chapter 1. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is he in behalf of whom I said, After me is coming a man who was proved to be my superior because he existed before me. And I did not recognize him, but so that he would be revealed to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom whom you see, the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen, and I have testified that this is the Son of God. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, what, a, what an incredible passage we are looking at. And so I, I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear that which you would say to each of us this morning, Lord. Fill us with your spirit that, you might re, that we might receive from you. I pray too, Lord, that you would fill me with your spirit that not only that I might receive, but I might be able to impart that which you desire to speak to our hearts this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So last week I told you that I wanted to talk about this idea of Jesus baptizing in the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to approach it a little bit differently. Um, than maybe some of you are perhaps used to. But when is that new? But, uh, but nonetheless, uh, what I love about this passage here in, in, in from 29 to 34 is that you have this incredible summary of, of, of what's called Christology or who Jesus is or the study of who Jesus is. And, and first of all, it really refers to him as the Passover lamb. We looked at that last week. And he is the Passover lamb who, who removes the sin of the world, which we see confirmed later on uh, in the Gospel of John when Jesus goes to the cross. Um, second of all, what we see here is, is a reference back to the earlier part of the first chapter of John, uh, even where he is, Jesus is the pre-existed, pre-existing one. And he is able to accomplish this idea of being the Passover lamb because he is the pre-existent one. 
He is the one who began before all things began, and he is the creator of all things. He existing with the Father and with the Holy Spirit before eternity, or before time even began, and existing into eternity past. Um, thirdly, uh, not only is he bringing salvation for us, which would be a past event because the cross took place when? In the past. But, but it is this, this idea of not only Jesus dying on the cross, but as we receive him as Lord and receive him as Savior, then he immerses us in the Holy Spirit, which is our comforter. The Greek word is the Greek word paraclete. So we have the Holy Spirit who comes and is, uh, not only are we immersed in the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to get into that in a minute, and I know that your mileage may vary, and I didn't wear the T-shirt this morning, but I probably should have, because there's different views on this. Not only are we immersed in the Holy Spirit by our simply saying yes to Jesus and receiving him as Lord and Savior, but the Holy Spirit also dwells inside of us. And fourthly, as the Son of God, he, he's, he's truly God incarnate, or what we call is the, the, the incarnation, um, and because he is the unique one, the Greek word monogenes, he is the unique one from the Father. There was none other like him. So you have these four incredible statements just in this little passage about who Jesus is that I could... I could probably go on for several weeks on all four of those. So the question here that, that, I, was, that, I, that I mentioned to you last week and that I, I got very interested in is this idea of baptism. John baptized with water. It said, the one whom the dove, the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a dove descended upon and remained on him, he would be the one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the early fathers had a lot to say about that, that, that action where the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove and rests upon Jesus and remains upon Jesus. And, and they tie it into the incarnation, God in the flesh, a very, very important doctrine that we, I, th I don't think that we, we grab a hold of as much as we probably should that, that God comes in the flesh as a human being and the Holy Spirit comes at the baptism and descends upon him. And the early fathers, and I'll let, I'm going to throw this out here because I'm still wrestling with this, but I thought I would throw it out here anyway. Cyril Alexandria was one of them. Uh, they believe that, that because the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus, that it empowered Jesus for him to be able to baptize us as well in the Holy Spirit. It speaks of agency. It speaks of his being the intermediary between us and the Holy Spirit because he became, he being God, also became human. And just like we needed that intermediary, God who became human to die for our sins and to pay the penalty for our sins, so also do we need that intermediary, God becoming human, to be able to impart to us the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, 
and have the Holy Spirit not only dwell in us, as 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tells us, but also when we are saved, and I'm going to get to that in a second, when we are saved, I, I believe we receive the Holy Spirit. And we are immersed in the Holy Spirit. Now, my thought on this is when I'm reading this passage, I'm, I'm thinking, what did the original hearers of this believe when this was given to them in the first century? What did they understand? What did they, did they not understand? Historical references. This idea of ritual bathing. Remember I mentioned the mikvah, the M-I-K-V-E-H, the mikvah. Ritual bathing was a huge deal, was a huge practice. How's that? Okay. It was a huge practice in first century Judaism. It was a little different, as I've told you before, with what John did, because John would take someone, they put him in the Jordan, and he'd put them underneath, and then he would bring them forward. In Jewish ritual bathing, when someone would be ceremonially unclean, they would actually jump in the water and, and basically dip themselves in. We find this in, in, the, in the Mishnah. The Mishnah talks about this quite a bit. The Mishnah is, is interesting because it was probably recorded before, after the time of Jesus, but it, it was a recording of oral traditions. I know this is going to feel kind of thin ice to some of you. But it's a very well understood thing within Judaism, both in traditional Judaism and in Messianic Judaism, that not only was there the law, the prophets, and the writing, but there was the oral traditions that went along with them. There was this commentary on what the Scripture said. We do the same. I'm doing it right now in teaching the Bible. And the Mishnah recorded these oral traditions, many of them extended way before the time of Jesus. And they were passed on from generation to generation. And, and, and it, it talks it, quite a bit about this idea of ritual bathing. A um, couple of even different schools of thought within the Mishnah. You had the school of Hillel, you had the school of of uh, um, of Shammai, we won't give a, I won't be doing a test on this, so don't worry about it. But it's an interesting thing about when you put Jews together, and I've told you the story about when you put ten Jews in a room, what do you end up with? Twelve different opinions, because they're 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 working through their understanding. And the reality is, the Christian church is no different. We really aren't. Also in the Talmud, the Talmud had a major section of its six sections in the Talmud. The Talmud had one of its major sections was, was known as the, um, let's see if I can find it here. I should just not bother with notes sometimes. The, 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 the Teharot, T-A-H-A-R-O-T. The Teherat, that's Hebrew, 
or the best I can do with it, which means the cleansings. That was one of the sections of the Talmud. So this idea of baptizing was huge. And if you have a concordance, and if you've got some time, sometimes sit down and, and read about all the different baptisms that are described in both the Old and New Testaments. You have this baptism of water, baptism of John, the baptism of Jesus, baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of Moses. And what does it all mean? And what is the significance of baptism, water baptism? What is the significance of Holy Spirit baptism, which obviously is referring to a spiritual event, not a physical event, correct? Although the two can coincide, we have to remember that in the Bible, the physical is a representation of what? The spiritual. Water is a symbol often of the Holy Spirit. When we get into John 7, in a while, um, we'll look at that again. What is the significance of baptism? What I find interesting here where John the Baptist is talking about Jesus baptizing in the Holy Spirit is that it's in the present tense of the Greek. Present tense in the Greek is a little different than English present tense. Present tense in the Greek is an action in the in process, an action in process with no assessment of that action's completion. It almost like slows down time. Or it is something that Jesus is continually doing with us in baptizing us with the Holy Spirit. I find that to be fascinating. I mean, what does this word even mean? I, it, it has a, a vast amount of uh, meanings to the word. It can refer to, to washing ceremonially for the, uh, for the purpose of purification. Uh, if you were ceremonially unclean, you had to essentially baptize or take a ritual bathing a ritual cleansing so that you would be ceremonially clean to enter the temple. Before that, the tabernacle. Now think through that, you guys, especially you you Bible students. I've already said it. What is the temple today? It's our bodies. It's our bodies. So what they did in the physical is a representation of how we are to live spiritually. And so if that be the case, no doubt we, we go out and we become defiled. We get spiritually dirty, do we not? And often it is that we need a refreshing from the Holy Spirit so that we're clinging again. It, it also means, and I love, this, I love this meaning, it means to dip or soak in a liquid so that that which is dipped, that which is dipped in the, the liquid, takes on the qualities of that which it is dipped in. 
For example, you put leather in dye, what happens? The leather changes color. In, in, in Greek literature, I think even prior to the time of Jesus, this word is used in a recipe for, of all things, pickles. And it talked about how you would make this brine, some kind of watery solution, and you would take cucumbers, right? And you would baptize them in the brine, and you would immerse them, you would dip them, and they would take on the characteristics of the brine. And when you finally took them out, you no longer had cucumbers, did you? You had pickles, not referring to the Portland pickles, but nonetheless. And so you, you have this idea that when something is immersed in a type of a solution, that it takes on a different quality, that it changes. And it tells us that Jesus is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. Now, before I get into what the New Testament says about this, I want to touch on a few verses in the Old Testament. Because while God can do what he wants, right, that's true, often it is that what we see given to us in the New Testament is something that is concealed in the Old Testament. Something that has been prophesied about, spoken about, taught about in the Old Testament. In other words, this whole idea of being baptized, sorry, this whole idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit has an Old Testament uh, origin. The wording is a little different. But nonetheless, I think when the prophets are speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit, and I had several verses, and I had so many pages of notes, I was going to just get lost. So I had to really cut this down. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, and I love this. The prophet speaking, actually the Lord is speaking here through the prophet. The Lord says, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. We sang about it this morning, didn't we? Soften my heart with oil. Don't let my heart be fallow. Don't let my heart be hard. And I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Isaiah 44, 3. And then it continues, but we, I won't spend the time in there uh, to read more of that. Isaiah 59, 21 also says that the Lord says, this is my covenant with them, my spirit who is upon you. I will put my spirit upon you. Pouring the spirit upon them, putting his spirit upon them. But what I really like is, is uh, um, Isaiah, excuse me, Ezekiel. If you have your Bible, turn there, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel's in the Old Testament, is right after Lamentations. Ezekiel 36, right around the, the 25th verse for you, Daniel. 
36.25, although I may back up a verse or two. He's prophesying to Israel. I believe it's a prophecy that is not fulfilled. I believe it's something yet to happen, but I'm also under the impression that when God is prophesying to Israel and he's talking about a restoration to Israel, I believe that the church is included in that. I know a lot of people don't believe that, but that's my opinion on that because I don't see the distinction. We are, I, I see us as one, of, one tree in the book of Romans. We are all God's people. Um, and it says here, in, in just for a little bit of context, in verse 24, it says, For I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. That obviously refers to Israel. Has that happened? Maybe. Maybe. Possibly. There's different views on that, but I don't want to get into that today. And then he says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you or within you. And I will take the heart of stone out of, uh, out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So again, the, the primary reference here is to the nation of Israel. Has this been fulfilled? I don't believe it has. Israel is primarily back in the land. The people of Israel are primarily back in the land today, but they are not worshipers. Um, of Yahweh through the Messiah Jesus. And in fact, a lot of them are not even Jews, if you will. I mean, they're Jewish blood, but they, they don't practice a Jewish faith. They're more secularist, if you will. And that's who they are today. But you have this prophecy of that this will be fulfilled at some point, and I, I have to think that that's the reference here, this idea of... of uh, of sprinkling them with water, ceremonially being clean. Some of the cleansings that we see in the Talmud, that we see in the Mishnah, were not immersion, they were sprinkling. And that's why I think, I think we get a little bit worked up over what a baptism is. Now, in the New Testament, it, it pretty much follows immersion, where someone is immersed. And when I... Baptize, that's my preference, to baptize someone and by, by immersing them under the water. You don't really see sprinkling, although the early church, particularly in places of the desert, there were no place to immerse a person in certain locations. The water level was just so low that, that you, know, you couldn't get someone completely underwater. So they would do what would be called effusion, where they would pour water on them or they would sprinkle them with water. And so I, I, think, I think, again, while I prefer immersion, I don't think that we need to get too worked up over how it's done, but understand why it's done. We have deeper water here, so I can immerse people. Uh, 
which I've done in very, very cold water, right, Ken? <laughs> and others, yeah. And, and so what I think this is referring to is this fulfillment where, where God is doing a new work in the life of people where they are water baptized, which is an outward expression of an inward conviction and an inward decision. Baptism doesn't save you. As my former pastor used to love to say, you can go down a dry center and come up a wet one. Baptism in and of itself does not save you. It is by receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that saves you. Now, there are those who had never been baptized. I can think of one in the Bible, can you? The thief on the cross. And, and he, he confessed Christ. And, and what did Jesus say to him? This day, you will be with me in paradise. But hey, guys, would you do me a favor? Take him down, get him wet, come back, put him back on the cross. You know, he didn't do that. He wasn't baptized. But again, the bapti- baptism is an outward expression of an inward experience. Therefore, it would make sense that baptism of the Spirit is an inward experience only. Because we are baptized into the third person of the Trinity. Now, different views on this as far as when does the baptism of the Holy Spirit occur. There is a view that believes that when someone is born again of the Spirit, when they prayed and received Christ as their Savior, that they are then baptized by the Holy Spirit, or in the Holy Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside them. Actually, I told you it was 1 Corinthians 7. I was mistaken. It's 1 Corinthians 3.16 where it says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now think about that. You are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. That can be kind of scary. <laughs> well, of course, he can read our minds anyway, but, you know. But, so there is this view that when a person is saved, they receive this immersion into the Holy Spirit. And, and the, really the only place that we can really try to go to for some type of guidance, and I'm not sure it's the best guidance, is, is what does the book of Acts say? Because there is a second view about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The second view is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a subsequent experience to salvation. That is more of a Pentecostal view. That is more of a charismatic view. There's also some biblical precedent that would affirm that view. So very quick, without turning to any verses, I'm going to pull it out of my outlines and I'm just going to throw it at you really quick because this, to me, is not even the major portion of what I want to focus on here this morning. Acts chapter 2, it's Pentecost. They, they're believers. They've been told. They've actually received the Holy Spirit, according to John 20. 
They're told to go and wait in the upper room, and then the, the Holy Spirit descends upon them and rests upon them as in cloven tongues of fire, and they all begin to do what? Oh, my goodness, they're going to speak in tongues. Because the Holy Spirit had baptized them. And so you have this experience that happens to them subsequent to their salvation experience. It's pretty much the same way in in Acts chapter 8 where Philip goes to Samaria and he preaches to Samaria and then he baptizes them in water after they have received and made a confession of faith, after they've received Christ. And, and this part, I, I, don't, I don't get this, all right? But I'm just going to teach it anyway. Philip doesn't lay hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit, but John and Peter, two of the apostles, one of them the author of this book that we're looking at, John and Peter come to Samaria, they lay hands upon them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So what happens again? You have a second type of experience. It's in the Scriptures. It's given to us in Acts chapter 8. It is repeated. uh, um, Excuse me. That is in Acts chapter 8, and then Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is in the house of Simon the Tanner on the shore of, of the Galilee. Now, he's in the house of Simon the Tanner. A tanner is an unclean profession. Peter is a Jew. Peter essentially is told to go bring the message of the gospel to these Gentiles who actually happen to be knocking at the gate of Simon the Tanner's house. And so they bring Peter to this Gentile's house, which was a very non-Jewish thing to do. And then what happens? He begins to preach to them. Now, he doesn't do a Billy Graham invitation, right? As he's preaching, they begin to speak in tongues, which was an outward sign that they had received the word and committed their lives to Jesus. They had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Same experience of Acts chapter 2, but it was, sub, it, it was not subsequent to salvation, but it was concurrent with their salvation experience. And in fact, the apostles said, well, have these having received the Holy Spirit as we do, can we deny them water baptism? The answer to that question would be no. So you have a discrepancy here. So which is it, before or after? Acts 19. The, Paul is in Ephesus. He runs into some of John's disciples. John the Baptist, excuse me. says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, but we, don't even, we never even heard of the Holy Spirit. So he tells them about the salvation of Jesus. They pray, they receive Jesus. They're baptized in water in the name of Jesus. And then Paul lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit, receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, and we're going to get into this. Sometime. Maybe, maybe before Christmas. I don't know. 
And I've shared this with you before. The wind blows where it wills. You can't tell where it's coming from. You cannot tell where it's going. So it is with the Holy Spirit. So it is with one who was born again of the Spirit. And, and I think, I think in, in particularly in modern Christianity, we like to have all of our ducks in a row. And I think the narrative in the book of Acts with those four verses that I, that, or instances that I share with you kicks those ducks, kicks them aside. And, and I think it calls us to re-embrace the mystery. What is it that you're doing, Lord? Is it a subsequent experience after salvation or does it happen concurrent with salvation or does it even matter? Well, somebody might speak in tongues and they may say something bad. Well, sorry. (laughs) No one can say Jesus is Lord, Paul says to the Corinthians, unless he can say that through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you cannot blaspheme blaspheme God. You cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit with your mouth. Now, I'm a Baptist. I like things nice and comfortable, okay? But I know that the manifestations, and I've been in some of those churches, I know that the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, and they're, they're, it's weird and it's difficult and you don't always understand it. And I, I, but I just have to commit that to the Spirit of God who knows a whole lot more about these things than I do. And no, I'm not going to expect any of you to start rolling down the aisles or swinging from the chandeliers or any of that kind of stuff, right? But, but, but the reality is, is, is that God is so much bigger. He is so much greater. He is so far beyond our capacity to really understand him. And we all have a comfort zone, do we not? We all have a comfort zone. And when God starts pushing that edge, and I can see it on some of your faces already, when God starts pushing that edge, we start getting really uncomfortable. But the thing is, when we start getting really uncomfortable, we want to start to control the narrative. So let's just say for the sake of argument that there is no second blessing. There is no baptism of the Holy Spirit subsequent to salvation. What about all those people who have had that experience? Because quite frankly, I think experience needs to be paid attention to. Rather than trying to say, well, it's just subjective. And what the Bible says right here, and you have to follow what the Bible says. Now, I understand the Bible. I read the Bible. I teach the Bible. For goodness sake, I get this, right? What about all those people who have had these second type of experiences? Was it just emotionalism? Where they were controlled by some kind of demon? If you being evil give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give to you the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? 
And, and what, I've, what I've realized is, is that whether the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is a subsequent experience, whether that's completely true or not, we do have biblical evidence that says it might be. We also have biblical evidence that says it isn't. It's subsequent with salvation. I think any time someone wants more of God, God meets people where they're at. And it really doesn't matter whether they have all of their theological ducks in a row or not. Because I'm becoming more and more convinced that when I get to heaven and I get to enroll in a seminary in heaven, I'm going to learn that some of the things that I believed maybe weren't quite so true after all, which will be a real drag. And it'll be humiliating, and it'll be humbling. But then some of the things that some of you believe that I disagree with won't be true either. And then I'll feel happy. Anyway, sorry. Romans chapter 8, and I want to finish. Romans is interesting. And we, we cover this, right? We, we went through Romans. I kind of just took a quick look at it. I've not, I'm not, I'm got a couple of verses here I'm just going to read to you. But what Romans chapter 8 indicates to us, you know, I'm, I'm going to read a couple more verses because this is good. I've got to go to verse 1 if I'm going to go to Romans 8, right? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's the subject of Romans 8. You're not under condemnation if you were in Christ Jesus walking in the Spirit. Now, does everybody, does any of you, any of you walk in the Spirit fully, completely, wholly, correctly, perfectly, all the time? No. Maybe that's why we need a new washing. Maybe that's why the baptism of the Holy Spirit is given in the present tense. Something to think about. In verse 9 of Romans 8, it says, it, 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 it outlines for us, it, it signifies to us that we have had a change of status. Remember we talked about that in the book of Ephesians? We've had a change of status. We go from being an unbelieving person who is outside of the commonwealth of, of Israel, the commonwealth of God, and we become part of God's family. We've had a change of status. Romans 8, 9 says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Again, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 16, I got it right this time, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. And when you think about this, the primary person of the Trinity who deals with humanity today is the God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is very clear on that 
in, in John 15, which it'll take us forever to get there, but nonetheless, we will look at that later when, when Jesus talks about sending the comforter. It is to your benefit, Jesus says, that I go away because if I go away, I will send the comforter. But we have a change of spirit, uh, uh, a change of status because we are no longer in the flesh, we are no longer carnal, even though at times we don't live very godly, but we are, we are in the flesh, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And second of all, what you have here is an indicator that we have changed, or excuse me, an indicator that we have attained that change of status from darkness to light, from non-Christian to Christian. Okay, The indicator is given to us in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, many as led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons or the children of God. Are you led by the Spirit? Are you the Spirit who dwells inside of you? Does He lead you? That's an indication that you are one of His sons or one of His daughters. And it, then it goes on to say, For we did not receive the Spirit of bondage again to fear but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8, 16. Do you hear the voice of the Spirit in your life? Have you ever heard the voice of the Spirit and not wanted to hear it? I've told you guys this story several times. Basically, I joined the Air Force because I was running from God. Smart thing to do, right? I could think of a lot of other options I probably could have done. But nonetheless, so I was kind of through. I was done, really pretty much done with Christianity. And I'm walking down the street in Biloxi, Mississippi. And I look on this billboard, and here's this billboard. It's an advertisement of this Christian artist named Keith Green. Um, and I just stopped, and I looked at it, and I went, oh, no. And the Spirit of God began to speak to me. Now, Keith Green was a great artist, but he was also incredibly legalistic. And anyway, I don't want to go down that path with you today. But, but I'm looking at that picture of him on that billboard, and, I'm like, and I just said, oh, God, even in this God-forsaken place. If you've ever been to Biloxi, okay, you'll understand. Even in this God-forsaken place, you have found me. That was an immersion. That was a being dipped back into. See, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they, they get arrested because they're preaching Jesus and the Sanhedrin are not happy. They tell them, do not preach in the name of Jesus anymore. They let them go. They have a prayer meeting. And it says the whole building shook. The whole building shook. Imagine that happening here, right here, right now. The wind blows where it wants. You can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. The whole building shook, and it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit again. 
This was subsequent to their being baptized in Acts chapter 2 because Acts chapter 4 always comes after Acts chapter 2 if it's chronological, and I believe it is. Ephesians tells us to, Ephesians 5 says, be continually, the Greek says, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't pray that God will fill you with the Holy Spirit when I'm about to teach just because it's a nice religious thing to say. I don't, I don't do that. I, I'm wanting God to fill you so that the Spirit can begin to bear witness to you and to minister to you and share with you things that you need to hear which may not have a whole lot to do with what I'm even saying. Because sometimes I hear it in the parking lot at times and it's like, wow, I don't know how that you know, almost, but you got that from the Holy Spirit. I'll trust that. Jesus said that it is to his our advantage that he go away. Because when he goes away, he can send his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us who lives inside of us, who leads us, who guides us. So much more. I, I really, I need another hour at least, but I'm going I'm to close. But just the understanding that as he went away, he sends his Holy Spirit. And whether that experience with the Holy Spirit is at the time of salvation or a separate incident after the time of salvation, quite frankly, I don't, I, that doesn't matter to me. Because the real question is, is not how much of the Holy Spirit you have, but the question is, how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? That's, that's a soul-wrenching question. How much of you does the Holy Spirit have? If the Holy Spirit is the primary agency agent of the Trinity who deals with humanity today, and I believe he is, we receive him because we received Christ as Lord and Savior. But how much of you does he have? That's the question. That's the important question. Not whether I was baptized in the Holy Spirit when I got saved or afterwards. But how much do I have of him? How much does he have of me today? Does he continue to bear witness with your spirit that you are his child? Are you led, uh, Romans eight fourteen? are you led by the Spirit of God? Do you want to be? Do you want to be? Simply ask. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the, 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 the key, the doorway, if you will, to the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ, receiving him as Lord and Savior. And if you've never received him as Lord and Savior, this is the opportunity that you have just to simply, to simply pray to him, Lord, 
I know that I'm a sinner and I need to be forgiven and I want to receive you as Lord and Savior. And I tell you what, growing up in church, I don't know how many times as a kid I prayed that prayer. (laughs) I don't know when it stuck. I think when I turned eight. But the thing is, do we have a humble heart that's always willing to further give ourselves over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Whether you've been a a Christian for 40 years or 40 weeks or 40 days, are we still willing to continually submit ourselves to his Lordship and allow the Holy Spirit to to come and, and to immerse us in his empowerment, in his holiness, in his purity, so that he can continue to grow us and continue to form us into the image of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's the importance to me of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not how high you jump, but it's how straight you walk.